Welcome to Platypod, the official podcast of the Committee for the Anthropology of Science, Technology and Computing. In this special episode, we revisit the 2023 edition of CASTAC in the Spring, an annual online event held by CASTAC. This year, guest speakers convened to discuss the topic of digital ethnography. The transcription for this episode is available on the CASTAC blog. Enjoy. Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you all for joining us for our second annual iteration of CASPER, CASTAC in the spring. Uh, my name is Baird Campbell. I am one of the co-chairs of CASTAC. Uh, with us also are our other two co-chairs, Svetlana Bordina uh, and Nicole Taylor. Um, and also uh, with us is the brains behind Casper 1.0, uh, Patricia Lang, who we'll be uh, hearing more from in a minute, who is our uh, former CASTAG co-chair uh, colleague. Um, so uh, as you all know, uh, today we are here to talk about digital ethnography and all of the things that that does and does not mean. Um, so uh, you should have seen the itinerary when you uh, we're uh, waiting for this to begin, but just in case you didn't, uh, we'll start with about 30 minutes for just opening remarks from the panelists. Uh, then we'll open it up for about 20 minutes of Q&A uh, from the audience. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, please use the Q&A feature in the bottom of your Zoom toolbar. Um, and those questions will be uh, moderated and uh, I will ask them directly to the panelists. Um, we have a lot of people here today. So for the main session, uh, we will not be having people unmuting and, and uh, turning on their cameras and stuff just for security reasons. But uh, in the breakout room, we will have a sort of more uh, intimate conversation, hopefully. Uh, so we'll, we'll have about 20 minutes of breakout groups, uh, which you're welcome to kind of hop between, or you can, uh, choose one for the whole time, uh, and then we'll wrap up uh, right before noon and just kind of uh, talk about what our takeaways are. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our panelists. Uh, I'm gonna introduce them in alphabetical order. Um, so our first panelist is Ilana Gershon. Ilona Gershon is a professor of anthropology at Rice University uh, and studies how people use new media to accomplish complicated social tasks, such as breaking up with lovers and hiring new employees. She has published books such as The Breakup 2.0, which is Cornell University Press, which I teach in my class every semester. Very highly recommended. Uh, and Down and Out in the New Economy, University of Chicago Press, and has edited three other volumes of ethnographic fiction on work, animals, and monsters. So a real, a real gamut. Uh, she has been a fellow at Stanford Study for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Notre Dame's Institute for Advanced Study, and is currently a visiting professor at the University of Helsinki, from where I believe she is joining us today. Uh, she has a book in press at University of Chicago Press on people's experience working in person during the pandemic, studying how it offers a lens on understanding the workplace as a site of private government. Our next panelist is Patricia Lang. Uh, Patricia G. Lang is Chair and Associate Professor of Critical Studies at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. She's an anthropologist researching new media, technical identities, video sociality, and digital literacies. She received the Franklin S. Hyman Award for Distinguished Scholarship in Freedom of Expression from the National Communication Association in 2020 for her book, Thanks for Watching, an Anthropological Study of Video Sharing on YouTube, published by University Press of Colorado 2019. Also highly recommended, lots of great books here. Uh, she is also the author of Kids on YouTube, Technical Identities and Digital Literacies, uh, published by Routledge and director of the ethnographic film, Hey, Watch This, Sharing the Self Through Media, uh, which was released in 2020. Lang is a co-editor of the Routledge Companion to Media Anthropology, which I believe a number of people present here today contributed to. Uh, a comprehensive volume containing 41 chapters covering ethnographic research in 26 countries, providing a state-of-the-art portrait of contemporary insights in media anthropology research. Um, yet again, another, y'all have a lot of reading to do this summer. So, 
and uh, finally, our, our last panelist is Nicole Taylor. Nicole Taylor, as I mentioned, is our incoming CASTAC co-chair. Um, she came to the CASTAC meeting and was immediately roped into several responsibilities. So if you would like to volunteer with CASTAC, this is a great time to tell you that we would love to have you do that. Um, so Nicole is an anthropologist who explores contemporary social issues related to youth, including social media, gender and identity, body image, obesity, and socio-emotional well-being. Her most recent work examines self-presentation, emotional expression, and sociality among college students on social media. Funded by a grant from the National Science Foundation, this project also addresses ethical and methodological challenges of conducting long-term participant observation in social media. Check out her recent co-authored with Mimi Nichter book from this project, also highly recommended, A Filtered Life, Social Media on a College Campus, which was published by Routledge uh, in 2022, last year. Um, so now that we've all gotten to know each other a little better, let's go ahead and uh, get started. Let's hear from our panelists. Uh, so as I said, uh, our panels will just give us some opening remarks. You'll each have about 10 minutes. Uh, we're hoping that you can just sort of um, give us a little bit of an introduction to what your own relationship to digital ethnography is or has been, um, how you've seen the field evolve or not, right? Uh, what digital ethnography works well or maybe not so well for, uh, any theoretical concerns that have emerged in your work or more broadly in the field, um, and what you think the future of digital ethnography looks like. Um, and just a little bit of context, the, the topic of this um, uh, session today came out of a sort of uh, sudden burst of interest in digital ethnography brought on by obvious global events that prevented any of us from traveling for several years. Um, and so we wanted to have a conversation about this thing called digital ethnography that uh, uh, people have been doing since we've since we've had digital stuff, right? But seems to have become more popular and certainly more accepted as a as a mainstream methodology than it was maybe even five years ago. Um, so that's the the the. In, in case you all haven't been paying attention for the last three years, that's the context. <laughs> Uh, that we're sort of having this conversation in. Um, so since I introduced you in alphabetical order, I will ask you to start in reverse alphabetical order, uh, just for equity's sake. So uh, Nicole, would you like to kick us off? Sure, thank you, Baird. Um, and thanks for inviting me to be on this panel. So um, in terms of my relationship with digital ethnography, my early work is on body image and youth, and that's what my, my first big project was focused on. And after I got my PhD, I worked in the private sector, mostly nonprofits, uh, for about 10 years before I came back to academia. And so when I came back to academia in 2016 and started at, at Texas State University, which is, by the way, the university where I got my undergraduate degree, and I was teaching and had an office in the same building where I took my classes, I was struck by the contrast in my memory of being in those hallways in the 90s and what I was experiencing in the hallways in 2016, which was that students were immersed in their phones in the hallways while they were waiting for classes. And as I walked down the hallway, I just became increasingly interested in understanding like, what's going on in those phones that's so immersive. What are they doing in there? Um, what like it, it occurred to me that there's a whole life in there that's worth exploring, right? Because people are spending so much time. This is pre-pandemic, even people are spending so much time online. So that was the sort of inspiration for my study. So I um, I wrote and was awarded an NSF Eager grant to explore um, ethical and methodological. Um, implications for doing long-term participant ethnography in social media, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to employ the methods of anthropology in these worlds, and I wanted to triangulate methods just like we do offline. 
I wanted to interview students about their experiences and their observations, but I also wanted to go in there and spend a lot of time kind of watching what was happening in those worlds myself and participating. So um, we did, uh, uh, my research team uh, did two year, or I guess it was three years of research um, with college students in social media. Um, and the, the first couple of years wrapped up right before the pandemic. And my colleague Mimi Nichter and I started writing the book during that lockdown. Well, as you all know, during the lockdown, social media, the way people engaged in social media changed dramatically. So we went back and we got follow-up data to understand um, how things were changing and incorporate that into our book. So that culminated in the book that we published last year, um, which Baird mentioned, A Filtered Life. And then, um, you know, kind of the main thrust of the research that we did was the ethical and methodological implications. Like, what does it mean to capture images on social media? And how do you anonymize those and retain, you know, the, the kinds of like dynamic kind of identity and sociality aspects that you need to retain in order to um, do an anthropological study of these online worlds? And so, um, Angela Vandenbroek and I, along with a few other colleagues, just published an article in First Monday on um, ethics and images in social media uh, along those lines. And so this sort of was my kind of entree into um, uh, doing digital ethnography. Um, and, you know, in terms of the future of digital ethnography, I mean, as Baird mentioned, I think the pandemic kind of thrust us all into doing online research, whether we wanted to or not, whether we had background in it or not. And so I think that there's so much creative potential going forward. Um, I think that, you know, I think that we all recognize these online worlds as sort of rich um, and lively spaces where people are engaging in ways that are as real and as significant as the ways in which they're engaging offline and understanding the connection between um, all of these different spaces. I just think it opens up like a real creative space in terms of a theory, methodology, um, and just our understanding of, of human sociality, um, you know, locally and globally. And, uh, what I'm seeing is that, you know, every time I go to a conference to present this work, I'm on panels with all graduate students, which is exciting because um, I think that this is a real up and coming um, kind of area. And uh, I, I can't wait to see where it goes and, and see how it develops. And I'm just really excited to be a part of the conversation here today. Thank you. Great, thank you, Nicole. Uh, Patricia, would you like to follow up? Sounds great. Thanks, Baird and everyone for having me here today. Um, so my adventure into the digital space um, started way back when I was a senior technology analyst for um, a company called SRI International which used to stand for Stanford Research Institute, but they parted ways with Stanford long ago, but they retained the name. So I was a technology analyst and I was kind of hanging around a lot of tech folks and watching some of their you know, research and culture. And they were, um, several of them were on MUDs, right? These multi-user dimensions or multi-user domains. Um, and quite frankly, I was super fascinated by them. Um, the whole idea that you could go in an online world and be someone else and hang out with other people was completely fascinating to me. So I got together with some other folks to sort of look at them and try to understand them a little bit more. And um, I, I guess the turning point for me really was when I saw a talk by Bonnie Nardi um, at uh, what was then called Xerox Park, which ironically was just sold to or just donated to uh, SRI, which is a weird, weird way that things circle back. But anyway, so Bonnie Nardi was giving a talk um, at Xerox Park about how you could design intelligent agents 
based on anthropological and ethnographic interviews she had done with librarians. And I sat there in the audience and I was completely mesmerized by this whole idea that you could use um, these eth ethnographic interviews to understand what exactly do librarians do? Because people had this very basic idea of librarians that they just kind of gestured toward a, what was then a card catalog and said, here's the card catalog, you know, like they had no clue. And she went through and talked about all the different ways that librarians help people find information and how this could be used to design intelligent agents. And I I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God, you could get cash on the barrel head for doing that kind of work, like sign me up. So I decided that I wanted to do that kind of work at SRI and do ethnographic research um, on technological and online spaces and digital spaces. Um, and I started to, to do that. We looked at a place um, in San Francisco called Cybermind, which was like a proto virtual, virtual reality kind of place and started to do that kind of work. But I began to quickly realize that I was going to need a PhD if I was going to really be serious about doing this kind of work. So I went to Michigan and um, I, I decided to get a PhD in anthropology and to do research on MUDs. And I, so I did a comparative study, one on a MUD and one on a MUSH, uh, multi-user shared hallucination, which uses a different kind of code base and has a slightly different understanding of what will happen. Um, MUDs tended to be more game oriented and MUSHs tended to be more socially, you know, role play oriented in those days. Um, but my my advisors were very excited about the, you know, posing as somebody else, being somebody else and having these fantastical stories. And I was captivated by that. But I will tell you that what captivated me much more was the tech talk that happened between um, the many of the technologized folks that were on these spaces. And um, that actually fascinated me much more. The, the fact that they would jockey for position and use linguistic expressions to try to uh, see who was smarter, who knew more about technology, who knew the right kinds of platforms to use and things like that. And they were sort of my, some of my advisors were a bit mystified. Like, why do you wanna do that? Like when you have these fantastical things, but um, that's what I decided to hang my hat on. So I called my dissertation virtual trouble and it was about these jockeyings for position. And I think that also led me into the STS space as well. Like how can we use language in these digital spaces um, to do this? So that's kind of like the, the early history. Um, but then I moved into a postdoc, which is like a gift from heaven. It was amazing to be in a postdoc um, at USC where we looked at, it was a MacArthur funded um, postdoc to be able to look at um, how kids were using technology. And the reason why MacArthur was interested in this was because that was the first generation back in 2006, 2007 of kids who were basically had a computer in their pocket. Like they woke up with a computer and they would wake up and text their friends. And so like, it was, a, it was an experience of computing that was a jump that was different from prior generations. And MacArthur wanted to know what's happening with this generation. Um, and I felt like part of that uh, postdoc and kids on YouTube, sort of the, the project there, was to basically fight for um, understanding that what was happening in these spaces was not just frivolous kinds of, uh, you know, wasting time and being wastrels online, but there was actual important literacies that were being cultivated, developed, that were necessary. And we talk about literacy, it's a very open-ended term, but it basically, at its root, it's, it's talking about what do you need to know to survive, to be successful in a particular era? So in some eras, it was, you know, writing and reading, reading and writing, right? Um, but as time's gone on, in addition to those things, a lot of people get scared that we were arguing during that postdoc and the MacArthur project that we were saying it, that online stuff was replacing those basics. And we weren't saying that, we were saying it's a buildup of those kinds of things. So that now if you wanted to be successful online, uh, you would have to have digital literacies. You'd have to be able to understand what are the tech tools that I need to express myself and um, you know, what are the social, um, what are the social conventions to be able to express yourself? Um, so those literacies built on each other. They weren't just, you know, uh, replacing anything. 
So I felt that we were fighting the good fight because we were trying to tell scared parents that like, no, these are important skills that your kids are going to need and they're developing them now. They're just not necessarily developing them in school and schools are changing to accommodate these kinds of, uh, you know, learning processes. And the funny thing is, like, as we look forward in time and we jump forward to like, how have things evolved? And I do find it kind of fascinating that a lot of the, my students sometimes start to sound like the parents that um, that we were encountering back in those days where they would say, you know, my little brother spends way too much time on his phone or, or whatever, like my little brother is in a, a room next to me. And instead of coming and saying, you know, when's dinner, he'll text us like when's dinner. That's that's weird to me. So like there was a disjuncture in my older students, you know, in college versus their younger siblings. And I found this weird back to the future moment, like, hey, I was fighting the good fight for your generation. I was interviewing you guys back in 2006 when you were young. And now I'm hearing like this weird retro kind of, you know, disjuncture. And that is happening again with the COVID era where people are saying Gen Z has lost, you know, like communication skills because they've been behind a computer in formative years. And so they don't have those skills. Um, because of like people being buried in a computer. So I find it very strange that some of the things in terms of understanding how the field has evolved, there's a certain undercurrent continually of fear um, with regards to digital spaces. Um, and the fear is similar, although it's changed in, in sort of its uh, complexion. So for example, when I was researching MUDs, a big fear at the time was, oh my gosh, people can be something else and deceive you. You can be deceived online, right? So nowadays, uh, of course we have all these images and so we don't have that we're basically just in text, but people are still worried about being deceived, right? Social media deceives you and you have FOMO, fear of missing out and people are being deceived that their life isn't as fabulous as like is apparent on social media. So um, I was thinking about this and contemplating this for my digital ethnography class. And so I, I made a digital cultures class and I asked my students, are we basically fundamentally afraid of media? And these folks, I teach at an art and design college. This is going to be their métier, right? Media is their life. And, you know, one of my students said, yes, you know, we are afraid of media. And so it's, it's strange to me that after all of this research, there's still this undercurrent of fear. And my question is, can we move forward without orienting one way or another to fear because it it could be argued that even the you know the 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 macarthur postdoc that i was involved in there was an undercurrent of hey parents are fearful and we're trying to tell them you don't have to be so fearful um so that's another point that i wanted to make um i actually find myself very fascinated um as as my time winds down here um, with what anthropology can tell us about digital media and digital ethnography. So I hung my hat on Thanks for Watching. It was the book I always dreamed of writing because in grad school, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could write a book that showed how anthropological theories can bring to bear on these digital spaces? And so chapters are oriented around very classical anthropological notions like reciprocity, like community, now there's a lot of talk about the post-human, so that is part of the book. And I find myself continually fascinated by um, what can we learn and, and what can different kinds of digital literacies teach us now. And I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to think that it's more and more difficult for me to ask neutral, open-ended questions about digital literacies. And I feel like what I'm seeing is that digital literacy is really becoming a kind of activism. Because if, di if digital literacy is all about what you need to know to survive, to, to thrive online and in your current spaces, and we can't know what companies are doing behind the scenes, we can't have access to that information, then we're going to need to engage in activism to figure it out. I don't know that I can continue to ask people completely neutral questions. Oh, so do you know that when you sign for a terms of service, you're giving away this, 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 and this? Do you know that? Yeah, I don't really care. Oh, okay. 
you know, like, I just don't know if I can continue on in that kind of conversation anymore. And, and neutrality is a big deal for anthropologists. Um, and I get that, but I feel like we're going to need to get serious about what we mean by applied anthropology and what we mean by it um, in this space. So maybe I'm moving toward uh, working on a piece called uh, Digital Literacies as Activism or Is Activism, because I think that's where we're probably headed. And I believe that concludes my 10 minutes. Is that right, Baird? Perfect timing. All right, lots to chew on there. Everything old is new again. Uh, and to wrap up our initial uh, panelist comments, Ilana, would you like to take the floor? Um, yeah, happy to. I, I love the way in which Patricia makes me feel um, very old fashioned about what I'm about to say. Um, but I want to start off by just telling you how grateful I am. I'm just really grateful, Baird, to you and to everyone at Castic for organizing this conversation. And I'm especially grateful because it gives me a chance to think more systematically about how my ethnographic questions led me 15 years ago to take what I was understanding and orienting myself towards a kind of unusual approach in media anthropology, right? So I haven't thought of myself particularly as a digital ethnographer, I've thought of myself as engaging in media anthropology writ large. And in 2007, I began studying how people were using new media to break up with each other. Because what I was really interested in was thinking about how people were using technologies to disconnect from each other. And I was very conscious that these were technologies that were primarily designed to encourage as much connection as an interaction as possible. And at the same time, that I was doing this, some media anthropologists were studying how technologies built in one cultural context were traveling into other contexts. And in the process revealing what turned out to be really interesting, dense and unexpectedly culturally specific ideas and practices around communication. And my hunch was that I could gain similar insights by asking about how technologies designed for connection were being used to disconnect instead. So my question was fundamentally how people were using media, any media, for breakups. And to be honest, I didn't actually care whether it was old media or new media, because I figured talking to people about using old media to end relationships would give me insights into my other interviews about new media. And I was so happy when someone told me a story about breaking up on a kind of getting a breakup letter on stationery that she thought was too formal. Like who does, uses cream stationery to end a relationship? And so my focus was really on how people were using media for a complicated and very social task. And it so happens that this led me down what turned out to be a different theoretical path and also into a different set of literature than many other digital ethnographers were doing at that time. So to begin with a highly charged social task meant I was not emphasizing the relationship between a person and a specific medium. And many other anthropologists were asking how a particular medium was being adopted by a cultural group or how a community formed and managed its gatekeeping and internal organization in a particular medium. And this just wasn't what I was doing. And as a result, I ended up interested in how people navigate a whole media ecology. I was interested in questions of remediation, how people understand newly introduced media in terms of the media they're already more familiar with. And I cared a lot about how every new medium that is introduced changes how people are understanding and experiencing the ways that all the other media in their media ecology made interactions feel more immediate or more mediated. So thinking about remediation in this way led me to believe that to understand someone's media ideology about how texting changes the message means that you have to understand what they think about Snapchat's effect on a message or an email, an email's effect. And so with these set of questions, it was no accident that I turned off into linguistic anthropology for analytical tools since linguistic anthropology was very interested in how people's beliefs, attitudes, and strategies around how language is structured and what language can do shapes how people actually use language. And what linguistic anthropologists knew about how to analyze language as cultural, their attention to linguistic structures and people's beliefs about language was pretty much what I wanted to know about media. 
I also want to point out that focusing on mediated breakups meant that one of the major concerns at the time, which was how to evaluate online communication as real, as important as offline communication, made absolutely no sense to me as a question. Because with the right media ideologies, texting breakup or sending a breakup message by Snapchat or Facebook Messenger turns out to have exactly the same effect as uttering it's over in person. Because by the end of the conversation, you have broken up with someone. So there was a whole set of concerns about a division between offline and online life that made no sense to me given my ethnographic material. And this focus has led to all sorts of things of what I think of as a fairly random coincidences about what it means to be a digital ethnographer in, in my research. So it turns out that everyone I interviewed for my mediated breakup project, I interviewed face-to-face. And when I moved on to hiring and writing about how people use new media to manage this complicated social task, it turns out that this really wasn't the most pressing question, right? LinkedIn had entered into the media ecology as one of the most standardized and least used social media. And it is incredibly boring to interview people about LinkedIn. And so I didn't actually get many good stories by asking people about how they were using new media and their hiring practices. And so my book on hiring only has one chapter on LinkedIn and it has, I think, a separate chapter on the platforms that people were developing to replace LinkedIn because people thought LinkedIn was just too old fashioned. But most of the book revolves around how people teach the all too familiar genre repertoire that job applicants have to develop to get hired, the resumes, the cover letters, the job interviews, a genre repertoire that hasn't actually changed all that much since the 1940s. But in my most recent book, in which I interviewed over 200 people about working in person during the pandemic, this was all conducted by Zoom or by phone. So this is a very long-winded way to say that I often hear a blurring when people talk about digital ethnography between the methods involved in using media to learn about other people's daily lives and focusing ethnographically around how people use digital media. But in my own work, these two things have not needed to be blurred. And so I'm really curious also about kind of what the rest of you think about how this distinction between using media for ethnographic purposes and studying how people use media plays out in your own work. But I also, like, I want to end on a plug for my blog. So I have a blog that I'm creating, Camp Anthropology, which is trying to be as big tent as possible about showing, kind of letting people know about the new books that have come out. Book reviews take too long to come out often. And so I post author interviews with people and I kind of have people post about their dissertations and anybody who wants to be involved is very welcome. I try to make sure that every book that comes out that was understood to be in digital ethnography or linguistic anthropology or performance studies can be featured on the blog. So please feel feel free to contribute. Let me know if you're interested. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about this panel and one of the things I want to kind of foreground is how each of the three of you have come to this uh, conversation, to this methodology um, in in very different ways um, and in sort of traditional anthropological fashion, often through like stumbling, right? Um, I think that's how most of us arrive at our ethnographic endeavors, right? Um, I think uh, what I'm hearing kind of across what people are saying is that there are a few kind of fundamental questions, one of which um, Ilana just touched on, which is this question of the, the, you know, quote unquote, digital divide, right? Is there a difference between what happens online and offline? Is one of these things more real or authentic or uh, reliable, right? Uh, if you're a researcher, right? Um, is your online version of yourself uh, sort of more or less authentically you? 
right? Um, and then uh, there's also, and this is one of the things that um, CASAC has kind of dealt with in the last few years, um, a, a sort of growing understanding of the interconnectedness of media anthropology and science and so technology studies um, and linguistic anthropology, right? We're, we're sort of realizing that one particular tool set is not gonna cut it depending on the questions that we're asking. Um, and, you know, in the background is the, is the revered voice of, of Marshall McLuhan telling us that the medium is the message. Um, and so there seem to be a lot of uh, tensions here uh, between these, these different ideas um, that I hope that we can get at. Um, so I wanted to start out by talking about that on offline divide. Um, I, I, I sort of fall into Ilana's camp of maybe this is a, a, an, an artificial division that we're making too big a deal out of. Um, but ethnographically speaking, right, people do experience some kind of disconnect between these two worlds, at least kind of theoretically, right? Um, and so I'm wondering if each of you could talk a little bit about how you're understanding or have understood the relationship between what's happening online, what's happening offline, um, and how we can kind of make ethnographic sense of that. And I'll just throw it out to whoever would like to start. Um, I'll, I'll start with this. Um, is this is a really interesting question that we grappled with in our work. Um, that, that divide between online and offline. So when we looked in the literature, um, you know, it was very much along the lines of what Ilana talked about and which is also reflected in our observations as well, right? So we found online and offline worlds to be very contiguous, right? Uh, just like, you know, before the internet when people were kind of moving through various contexts in their lives home, work, school, various community, churches, whatever, um, you know, now you're adding these online worlds as well. And so people are just continuously moving through online and offline contexts. So we were very careful going into the research to not sort of have that uh, bias of online versus offline, qualitatively different. But what was interesting is that for our participants, they did make that distinction. For example, um, you know, part of our study was self-presentation and you know, sort of body image, and uh, you know how they kind of constructed selves across sites differently. Um, and students would tell us, especially young women, we were interviewing them. They would say, you know, uh, in terms of how I look, you know, in real life, their words. I don't really care how I look. They would say, look at me. I haven't brushed my hair. I don't have any makeup on. I'm wearing sweats. I don't care how I look in real life. But online, I care a lot how I look. Um, I make sure that my hair is perfect. I make sure that I'm dressed a certain way. I pay attention to the angles of the camera. I edit my photos. Uh, and so it was interesting, you know, so in writing the book and in, in writing up our findings, we really wanted to make sure that we kind of, uh, you know, straddled both and captured the nuance of, um, you know, how our participants kind of engaged in these worlds. At the same time, while they, you know, articulated this distinction, you know, that this, this concept of authenticity was very important to them. And what they meant by that was that there's a thread of yourself that remains intact and recognizable across all the contexts, right? So that you don't look or appear or come off in terms of your personality as vastly different online and offline or across different kind of social media sites. And so they were also struggling to kind of navigate, um, you know, who they were in these different worlds and uh, how to, um, you know, kind of re re uh, retain a certain thread of, of um, authenticity while they also kind of understood them to be kind of qualitatively different as well. And so 
our task again was to sort of try to capture all of that nuance and you know because in our observations they were very much there was this free flow between the online and offline did we lose nicole's audio oh we have i don't know what happened i didn't touch my computer but it muted me (laughs) Anyway, I was just wrapping up and saying, I think all of us are, are, I think that that is one of the challenges in doing this kind of research is, you know, really trying to capture the nuance and understanding that everyone, researchers and participants alike, are all grappling with this um, online, offline, um, you know, what the two worlds mean and how they're connected. Would either of our other two panelists like to add anything to this question? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose I, I brought it up initially because for me, the question really was um, the things that I was studying meant that what people were doing on online had very real effects for what was happening offline, right? People, if they were getting hired online, they were hired offline too. If they were breaking up online, they were breaking up offline as well. But I think One of the things that I really was bringing to this was that it wasn't my role as an anthropologist to make this call, right? It was their, it was my interlocutor's media ideologies that shaped how they were thinking about the divide between online and offline. So if I had been perhaps studying MUDs and how people got married in MUDs, if they got married in a MUD, they weren't married offline, Like they were only married in the context of that mud. And that I think is important to think about how people's ideas about the media shapes very much how they would locate themselves along this divide. And I feel really strongly that anthropologists shouldn't be moving their own media ideologies into studying what the people, what people are that they're studying are telling them, right? That you need to have a space in which you let their social analysis dominate. Yeah, this is a question that has really persisted um, for a long time. And again, going back to the olden times, there was this really strict division in in the old mud days, you know, that what was online was, you know, deceptive and and this just drove me crazy from um, an anthropological viewpoint, right? Because if you read your Goffman, there's all kinds of uh, deceptions and performances and all these things going on in, you know, in person. So um, I never liked this terminology of in real life versus, you know, virtual life. I've always found that to be a really unfortunate kind of terminology because it masks the other things that go on, right? It masks how real things, the impactful things happen in digital spaces and it masks how deceptions happen, um, you know, in person. So I don't like the term face-to-face because not all things that happen in person are face-to-face. So I try to say in person. Um, And so part of thanks for watching, part of that project was to document how those interactions and those things, you know, thread on and offline. And I think it's it's fair to tr- really try to understand what are the consequences of technologized spaces. I think it's it's fair to understand those consequences and how uh, technology plays a role or shapes, you know, our interactions without succumbing to a false binary that they are completely separate, right? Um, and so. What, what kind of blows my mind a little bit is, you know, and I, I wrote that thanks for watching with those that thread in mind as a kind of a text for undergraduates because they still come into my digital cultures class saying in real life, blah, 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 or virtual, you know, virtual life, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how is this happening? You guys are like, you were the first generation to have a computer in your pocket from 8 a.m. when you wake up, you know. Um, so like, how, how does this still happen? Uh, and I felt compelled and thanks for watching to document that. Um, and yet it still continues. And I still wonder how much of a, you know, how strict I should be about trying to eliminate that language. But I just don't think it's, it's helpful because I think it perpetuates a kind of binary that gets in people's way for understanding, you know, how sociality works. So I like to show a lot of examples in my classroom of how 
things that happen online have impact, you know, um, offline or in person um, for, the, for that effect. But it's it's a really difficult paradigm to shake. It's almost baked into people's brains so that even at the end of the you know course, there's going to be a few people still saying in real life. And I'm, uh, anyway, um, but it is important. I, I totally echo um, some of the things that have been said before, um, not to get ensnared by a, a particular media ideology. Um, anyway, so I'm going to stop there. But I think it's a, a question that persists and continues. Um, just to kind of uh, add on to this and lead us into our next question uh, from the Q&A. Also, just a reminder, if you have questions, please go ahead and uh, plop those either in the chat or the Q&A. Um, I also teach undergrads every semester about uh, social media and similarly spend a lot of time saying like, what do you mean by real? What do you mean by fake? Um, and the example that I always say very much to Patricia's point is like, do you speak to your grandmother in the same way that you speak to your best friend? right? Is, is one of those versions of you real and the other one isn't, right? Um, and I think perhaps like an ethnographic insight that we can take away from the persistence of this conversation is that it allows us to have this very naive understanding of our offline selves as really unified and consistent, right? Um, and I think that that is something, you know, far be it for me to speak of human universals, uh, but it seems to me that we've been thinking about the nature of the self for, you know, several thousand years uh, and, and trying to figure out what does it mean to be real? What does it mean to be fake, right? And maybe media is just sort of the latest wrinkle in this discomfort that we have with our inability to ever actually access the internal truth of somebody, quote unquote, if that exists. Um, and this leads into a question from the Q&A that I'm going to condense a little bit, but it gets to this uh, interesting kind of consequence of this divide, which is that when we talk about digital ethnography, we're not always talking about the same thing, right? And I think that uh, several of the panelists brought this up. There is a difference between using digital media as a tool to do ethnography, right, of perhaps a community that does not understand itself as primarily online versus an actual ethnography of a digital space as digital space, right? And then all the sort of gray areas in between. Um, but uh, what do you all make? of um, this kind of double meaning of digital ethnography? Do you see these things as, as related to each other, as influencing each other? And this maybe also gets to the question of, um, can digital ethnography be useful for projects that we don't understand as digital projects, right? In a world where we are all using, we're all on Zoom right now. Right? We're speaking to people from all across the planet right now. Um, and so it seems to me like maybe there aren't projects that aren't at least a little bit digital at this point, uh, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I'll start, I guess, yeah, I, I to tag off of what you just said, Baird, it's hard for me to imagine, uh, you know, doing an ethnography of most communities at this point that doesn't take into account um, their engagement with digital life. Um, I just, I think it's so pervasive, especially I think the pandemic opened the door so wide. Uh, it, you know, it really ramped up um, our, our interaction and engagement online. I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a, a project that wouldn't, that, that wouldn't address uh, digital interaction in some way, shape or form going forward with most communities. Um, I just, I think that it's, uh, I think that it's part of the future of ethnography. And I think, um, 
you know, I think that we're all kind of coming at it from different angles. It's exciting because it's, it's an area for growth. It's an area for new ideas. It's an area for experimenting with methodologies that will, you know, probably be translatable beyond just digital worlds. And so I just think it represents a really, um, you know, unique time in anthropology for us to really kind of um, think, think more creatively. Um, yeah. I wonder if, um, if these distinctions will actually be as distinct <laughs> in the future. Because um, I, I feel like if, if we really are very much integrated with digital spaces as well as other spaces, um, right now, our orientation really does see them as distinct because of, um, you know, where we've been and where we're going. But if everything is very integrated, then it may not seem so different to delineate methods from spaces, because um, if we're all on in these integrated ways and we're all we need methods that help us understand these integrations, then it may be a lot more blended, um, you know, in the future. And I guess just to give a, <laughs> a plug for our Routledge companion, um, you know, we've seen how people almost kind of begin to realize that the space that they're researching has such a strong digital component and they may not have been prepared, you know, for that because that's not their training or their orientation, but the people that they are studying, um, there's a hugely important uh, digital component to what they are doing. So now they've had to pivot you know, into that space. And so part of the role of the companion was to um, kind of offer something for everyone, right? People who are experienced in the field, but also people who are just learning, hey, what is this digital ethnography, this media thing that now I have to deal with because these things are so integrated and just kind of like trying to provide a tool to bring everyone up to speed. So I just kind of want to pose a, a counter question, I guess, which is I wonder if these um, distinctions um, are really so, are going to be so distinct um, sometime in the future. I think one of the things that we don't talk about very often around this issue is the fact that how fieldwork begins and how fieldwork ends has really changed because our interlocutors are so much online. And people, I mean, in my first field work, when I went home, I was leaving the field in a very clear way. And I could write letters to people, but most people weren't involved in universities and so weren't on email. And you know, there was a tremendous amount of work that I had to do to maintain a connection. And now when people come back from the field, they're still deeply immersed in people's lives. And the, that changes the sense of writing things up and the ways in which your information about your ethnographer circulate, I mean, about your ethnography circulates has really changed. And this, this too is happening in the ways in which we're experiencing shifts in what does it mean that everybody is online. And I don't know that we're talking about kind of how to finally get an ending to your field work when sometimes that's what you desperately need so that you can start writing. Yes, um, I, I think, just, um, oh, sorry, Nicole, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to tag off that really quickly. Um, yes, Alana, I think that is such a good point because you know we finished our field work or we thought we did and then the pandemic happened and suddenly TikTok became like the platform. And so we had to go back and keep collecting. And I kept, it became this sort of joke between Mimi and I, my co-author and I, you know, she, she likes to think deeply and take time and, you know, with the writing. And I kept saying, we got to get this out because the longer it takes, we're going to have to keep going back and doing, collecting more data. And so, yes, I, I think that is a great point, something that is definitely going to affect the way that we gather data going forward and our timelines for research to publication as well. Yeah, and just to, to piggyback on that, to kind of put a bow on this, 
you know, there is a, I, I think on the one hand, you know, as a person who recently wrote a dissertation, uh, there's certainly something to be said for like knowing that your field work is over, right? Um, but we've also spent a lot of time in this discipline criticizing the idea of, well, I went to an island and interviewed people and then I wrote a book and never spoke to them again, right? Um, and I think one of the things that social media and digital ethnography in general maybe whether we like it or not, encourages us to do is be a little bit more accountable to our interlocutors, right? Um, and that obviously has positives and negatives. Our interlocutors are not necessarily gonna like everything that we write, um, but no longer are you writing a dissertation that is going to sit in a university basement and be read by only very dedicated people who have managed to find a physical copy of it, right? Um, and I, I will say that I definitely had that in mind as I was writing, right? This very present idea that like, it is much more likely that these people are gonna read this or at least sort of catch wind of it than it was five, 10 years ago, right? Um, we have lots of great questions in the Q and A um, and unfortunately we're not gonna get to all of them, but I would like to invite you to bring those questions to the breakout group of your choice. It's that time. Uh, so we will be opening up three breakout groups. Uh, they will be available for you to freely join and unjoin. You can choose one and stay there the whole time. You can hop in between if you'd like a sort of little uh, sampler platter experience. Um, the uh, three breakout groups are going to be breakout group one is going to be with uh, Ilana, which will be bridging the on and offline. So lots to talk about there. Uh, breakout room two will be with Patricia, media migrations. And breakout room three will be ethics and digital ethnography, which will be led by Nicole. Uh, we'll have about 20 minutes there and then we'll just come back and wrap up. Uh, if you have any uh, issues, you can uh, ask questions about them in the chat. We good, Angela? Yeah. All right, everybody, everybody join their breakout groups, <laughs> including the people running them. <laughs> Are we all back? I'll take everyone's silence as a yes. Great, I'm used to that because I'm a teacher. Um, all right, so uh, we have just a few minutes left uh, to just kind of report back on what we talked about. Uh, since I was uh, assisting in group one, I'll go ahead and kick us off. Uh, our group was the online-offline divide. Uh, you will all be shocked to know that we did not come to uh, actually a definitive answer on this question. Um, but we had some very interesting conversations about... Um, Number one, um, the sort of, I, I think what we all kind of, or many of us agreed was an imperative to incorporate digital spaces in just sort of ethnography writ large at this point, um, or at least digital uh, field work, right? Um, simply because there are very few humans left on the planet who are not spending a a large portion of their day um, connected to each other through media and technology, right? Um, and we also talked about how the, the sort of like special and rarefied character of the internet and social media and the way that we talk about it as somehow kind of fundamentally different from the other kinds of media that our interlocutors are uh, interacting with and experiencing um, that it sort of allows for a bracketing of those spaces that is maybe um, not allowing people to reach as rich an ethnographic conclusion as they otherwise might. Um, so in conclusion, the online offline divide is uh, fake and also very real. Um, 
And we simultaneously recognize that it is really blurry and also that it seems ethnographically to be something that people think exists or should exist, whether or not that is actually borne out in their kind of daily, daily actions. Um, group, group two, and remind us what your group was. That's useful. Awesome. So yes, I was not sure who was uh, group three. <laughs> there I am. Uh, I'll report about the conversations we've had in our uh, group on media migrations. So uh, we've we've had a great conversation that touched up on uh, several points. Uh, so one of the let me let me briefly look into my. Um, so the conversation was sparked by Patricia, uh, Patricia mentioned her interest in, in the migration between uh, from one media platform to another media platform. Uh, Sometimes uh, the specific example she was giving was the migration from YouTube that was sparked and kind of fueled by the commercialization of YouTube and um, uh, that sparked uh, migration. And so today we have seen various examples of migration from uh, from Facebook, from Twitter, from uh, to TikTok, so all different kinds of movements. And we've discussed that uh, one, one uh, point that stood out to me was that uh, in many ways, our conversations are centered on US-based contexts, uh, and uh, it would be great to include more uh, research and more kind of conversations that discuss media migrations in uh, different contexts. And Patricia gave, uh, gave us an example of such research that was focusing on Hong Kong, but uh, I think that it, we definitely need more of that. Uh, we also heard examples uh, from uh, different media migrations that happened uh, in Chinese context. So um, I think it's great to kind of diversify our conversation and bring in examples from really different geographical and cultural uh, play the spaces. Then uh, we were talking about the kind of the sociality of uh, media migrations and kind of the uh, what kind of what are the sort of the um, uh, let me see what kind of um, how creators and users themselves engage and kind of think and understand uh, the driving factors, uh, the kind of the push and pull factors of their presence on different media platforms. And uh, it's interesting to see how um, to see differences and similarities in how really users, so content consumers and content creators, how they engage with that and whether there is a strong divide between them. Uh, and how do these two groups engage with uh, each other or algorithms and how this kind of this uh, triangle um, relationship forms that kind of and affects the presence of, of people on one platform over the other. And um, I think uh, I'll stop here just in the interest of time. Anyone from our group, if you want to add anything, please feel free to do that. Uh, but it was a really great conversation, and uh, I'm super excited to hear about what the third group was talking about. Hi, so I was in the ethics group uh, moderating for Nicole Taylor. Uh, so we had a good discussion about ethics, and of course, there's never enough time to talk about ethics, so we didn't get into as much as probably we all wanted. But there was a lot of really good discussion about just how complicated the ethics of doing digital ethnography are uh, and how important it is for ethics to be a practice that we are involved in as we go through. So reaffirming permissions, asking uh, consent more than once throughout the process. We also talked a bit about uh, the article that Nicole Taylor and I uh, published recently with some colleagues of ours about how to use uh, Photoshop to anonymize images better for today's world where algorithms can view images and de-identify them quite easily. Uh, so I would recommend that as well. Um, but overall, I think the, the conversation was a lot about these complicated areas about when do you need to announce yourself in a space? Is something public? What happens when it's no longer public in the future? And how people's lives online change over time. So they may be students totally okay with their bikini shots in one year. And a couple of years later, when they're graduated and professional, no longer wanting that to be something that's part of their online life. Uh, and so how do we respect those choices? And so a lot of it was about maintaining dialogue and maintaining a constant practice of ethics throughout and contact with those people. Uh, and Nicole, if you'd like to add anything else, but I think that's probably the best sum of I have for now. <laughs>
I think that that is a great note for us to leave it on. Um, ethics is not a one-time thing. It's not getting IRV approval. Um, it is a thing we should be thinking about always, right? Uh, and especially with digital methods because IRBs sort of continue to not know what to do with them. Um, the burden is even more on the researcher to make sure that we are being as, as ethical as we can be in this admitted minefield of a discipline that we find ourselves in. Um, I just wanted to thank everybody so much for coming today. We're so jazzed about uh, the massive interest in this event. Uh, if you'd like to catch up with us uh, and make sure you don't miss any events, uh, we wanna invite you to join our mailing list at castdeck.org slash join. Um, we'd also like to invite you to check out our blog, Platypus, at blog.castact.org and the accompanying podcast called Platypod, produced by our very own Svetlana Borodina. Um, and also uh, two prizes that are uh, available this summer. If you are a recent graduate student, uh, graduated within the last year or still in graduate school, uh, we have the uh, David Hacken Graduate Student Paper Prize that is due on July 15th. I will drop that link in the chat. And if you are a person who has written a book-length monograph on this particular topic in the last year-ish, uh, we invite you, oops, sorry, that was the link for this one. We invite you to apply for the Diana Forsyth Prize uh, nominations are due June 1st. Um, and uh, just a note that you do not need to uh, be planning on attending the annual meeting to be able to apply for those prizes. Um, thank you all so much. Angela, you wanna take us out? We just listened to the 2023 edition of Castock in the Spring. As always, we welcome any feedback that you may have on this episode or the broadcast more broadly. Feel free to contact us at bloodypod at castock.org. You can subscribe to this podcast on any platform that you use to listen to your podcast. Thanks for tuning in to listen to us today.